This is the Tallahassee Business Podcast. Over the next few weeks, our mission is to bring you interviews with key leaders and community members with information you can use while we work together to navigate the impacts of the COVID-19 coronavirus. The Tallahassee Business Podcast is presented by the 223 Agency, a digital relations firm. Hey there, Tallahassee, Jay Rebel here. Welcome to another special edition of the Tallahassee Business Podcast. We're coming to you on a weekly basis right now as our community is dealing with the effects of the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic and the total upending of our uh, normal day-to-day series of economic activities that we have here in this community. Uh, We're very proud to have a strong business community here in Tallahassee. We've got amazing companies that are doing amazing things. I hope you've seen and heard some of the things that our team has been producing about our Jobs Now initiative. If you haven't seen that, I would encourage you to go to our website, www.talchamber.com, to learn more. But today we've got another great episode of the Tallahassee Business Podcast coming to you. We've got two guests from one of Tallahassee's most uh, well-known uh, and, and a wonderful foundation of our legal community firm, uh, Osley McMullen Law Firm. First off, joining us, uh, we have Deborah Minnis, who is a shareholder at Osley McMullen. And today on the show, Deborah uh, and later Ruth Bavick is going to join us as well to talk about the Family First Coronavirus Response Act. For you who maybe is an employer or maybe an employee, this is going to pertain to your sick leave policies that have now been adjusted by our Congress uh, moving forward for the rest of the year, looking at uh, how companies uh, should continue to relate to their employers with this really unique situation going on. So without further ado, I want to bring Deborah onto the show. Deborah, welcome to the show. We appreciate your time uh, and certainly your expertise, but uh, thanks for joining us on the Policy Business Podcast. Oh, and thank you very much, Jay. And I also want to thank the the chamber and everyone in the Tallahassee community for being willing to listen to me <laughs> talk about this uh, really unique situation. Um, I've been practicing in this in the area of employment for over 30 years, and to have uh, Congress and then the Department of Labor to put together a law and regulations as quickly, I don't think I've ever seen that happen. Well, they certainly don't make a habit out of moving fast up there in Washington, but I think everyone's very thankful that they have been uh, timely of late. Uh, obviously, between uh, the the CARES Act and the, the variety of stimulus uh, spending that's coming out of D.C., that's a huge thing, which we've talked about uh, here on this show and we'll continue to talk about. But it's also very important to focus in on that, again, that employer-employee relationship and changes that are happening uh, in that pipeline right now. And Deborah, can you can you just paint us a little bit of uh, the picture before we jump in of what your expertise in the field of law looks like, and um, and and just tell us a little bit about yourself before we jump into that whole discussion. Uh, yeah, I would be happy to. Um, I've been a practicing attorney, uh, and I've always been in the Tallahassee area for over 30 years. Uh, I started with the uh, Attorney General's office and started out doing civil rights and then moved into the employment defense area. And I've basically been, uh, 
I've been doing employment defense generally uh, for employers for uh, almost my entire 30 years of practice. I joined the Osley Law Firm in 1991 and became a shareholder in about 1992-ish, you know, about after about a year or so, and continued to do employment defense. Um, the addition that occurred when I moved to Osley is that in addition to litigating cases and defending cases in court, I also took on the role of consulting with uh, employers in their employment matters. So. For a number of years, I've been um, consulting with employers on some of these types of leave issues, particularly the Family Medical Leave Act, which has been affected by this new law, and a number of other employment-related areas, including the Fair Labor Standards Act, which this act borrows uh, some of those provisions. So that's kind of just a general overview of uh, my experience in this area. Well, thanks for sharing that, and again, we appreciate you sharing your expertise with all of our listeners and chamber members here in the community right now. Um, Deborah, maybe again jumping in, can you tell us just on a on a base level what the Family First Coronavirus Response Act uh, is and what that generally means for employers? Um, sure, and, and you know how we uh, professions are, we love to use acronyms. So the FFCRA, uh, basically it's, it's an act that was an, um, enacted by Congress, and it took effect April 1st, 2020. It is set right now to expire on December 31st of 2020. Of course, there could be amendments, there could be extensions, depending on how uh, the COVID-19 issue rolls out. Uh, one of the overarching things that both employers and employees should uh, understand about this particular act is according to the Department of Labor when they did their regulations to implement it, their concern was to make sure that there was a period of time where there would be uh, consistent paychecks for employees throughout that 12-week period, and I'll talk about that in a second. So the overarching uh, basis for the act is to have some consistency in uh, employees getting paid during this time period. Uh, on the other hand, they did want to balance the needs of the employers, uh, so there are some qualifiers in the act to help, especially the small business employers who have less than 50 employees, so I'm going to talk about that for a little bit also. But basically, the act itself has three major parts. I'm going to talk about the two major parts dealing with the leave. There is a tax credit piece um, that is in there also, uh, and I'm not really going to get into that today because there are so many um, IRS and other employment tax issues with that that I could spend the whole day just discussing that. Uh, but the two important pieces that I'm going to talk about today is the expansion of the Family Medical Leave Act, and the Emergency sick, leave, sick Paid Sick Leave Act. And people have heard about the uh, Family Medical Leave Act. Most people refer to it as the FMLA. And one of the things about that act is that normally it only applies to employers with 50 or more employees. This new expansion will apply to any employer who has less than 500 employees. 
So even if you have not had to deal with the FMLA in the past, you may have to deal with this expanded portion of the FMLA at least till December 31st of 2020. Um, the only thing, the thing to remember though is that the expansion only gives leave for uh, the need to provide child care for your child um, due to the closure of the child's school or daycare provider because of COVID-19. So it is a very limited expansion. That's one thing to remember. The other key portion of the act that I'm going to talk about is the Emergency Paid Sick Leave Act. Generally, in the U.S., there is no requirement that employers provide paid leave of any kind. Most employers do, uh, but there, this is the first time that the government has really stepped in and ordered uh, paid sick leave uh, for employees. And under that provision, employees are entitled to receive up to 80 hours of paid sick leave for a variety of reasons. There are about six that are listed in the Act, and Ms. Bobbick is going to go into more detail about the uh, qualifications for each of the six. But just to give you an idea is that if the government or a governmental agency has ordered a quarantine because of COVID-19, whether a healthcare provider has required that a particular employee self-quarantine because of COVID-19, whether the employee has symptoms of COVID-19 and is seeking medical diagnosis. It also does include a portion for caring for someone who um, has been ordered by the government or by a healthcare provider to self-quarantine. Also, uh, the child care portion is here also, so there's a piece in there dealing with the child care if your child school or daycare provider has uh, been closed because of COVID-19. And there's kind of this little catch-all where the uh, they're experiencing similar conditions as specified by the Secretary of Health and Human Services. So they kind of give a catch-all for those folks to come up with other issues. But that's kind of an overview of how the uh, Act works. And there are a variety of interplays and uh, <laughs> interesting little nuggets uh, uh, that differ between the law itself and the regulations in general. You know, Deborah, you mentioned that the, the expansion of the law is somewhat limited in scope, obviously related particularly to the COVID-19 you know, coronavirus. But to your point, it also expands uh, the field of companies uh, that this applies to. Um, can, can you speak to the things that companies should be aware of most right now? Uh, again, this is probably hitting some people on their radar that maybe aren't accustomed to it, I would think. Absolutely. Um, as indicated, the Act overall applies to any private company uh, that has fewer than 500 employees. Now, it also applies to governmental and public agencies, regardless of the number of employees working for that particular agency. So it's going to apply if you're a governmental or public agency. But for the, the companies with fewer than 500 employees, as I indicated earlier, um, most of the smaller companies with less than 50 employees 
uh, F, uh, FMLA was not even on their radar. Uh, they have no idea what's involved in that. Uh, this, the first portion of this act does allow uh, an employee to take up to 12 weeks of paid leave, well, 12 weeks of leave, let me start there, to care for a child whose daycare has closed or school is closed because of COVID-19. So that's going to sweep in a lot of employers who never had to deal with the FMLA ever at all. Now, I guess as a kind of a balancing act, the uh, law says that the first 10 days of that expanded FMLA leave can be unpaid, but it does allow an employee to decide to use paid leave that the employer uh, offers them that they have on the books. So if you're in a small employer and you allow you do allow your employees to have paid leave, uh, they can use that paid leave during that first 10-day period. Now, the tricky part with that is that the second part of the act, which is the emergency paid leave section, can also be applied in that 10-day period. So arguably, an employee could be paid for 12 weeks of leave to care for uh, a child because the daycare is closed or the schools are closed. And for a lot of employers under 50, that has never, uh, ever been on their radar before. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's certainly a, a a substantial change that many will want to know uh, more about and how it's going to affect their, uh, their organization. Um, talk a little bit about that relationship between the employer and the employee, because obviously there are some things that um, employers are going to have to let their employees know uh, with these changes happening. How, how important is that right now? That is extremely important. And in fact, um, the Department of Labor has developed a notice poster that employers are required to post. So if you haven't gotten it, they really need to go onto the DOL website or um, get with someone that can get them a copy of that poster because that poster has to be uh, displayed. Uh, and it basically explains to the employees what their rights are under these two provisions. So that is really important that they uh, seek that out and get that. So if you've got under 500 employees, you need to find that poster and get it up in your workplace. It's a little tricky now because most people are working from home. So what some employers are doing is that they're getting the poster, they're getting a copy of it, and they're sending it out to their employees uh, via email uh, if necessary. But we want to get notice to the employees of their rights under these two provisions. And what are some other critical things that uh, employers should be thinking of in this time? Obviously, you know, this this is something that has the potential to you know, everyone's lives and, and professions have been somewhat upended, but if you're an employer and you're still trying to figure out how to make uh, everything balanced at the end of the month right now, what are some other things that maybe they should be paying particular attention to uh, with this new um, change to uh, how we handle these types of things? Uh, great question. And one of the things I would want to note is that uh, I'll kind of focus a little bit on the extended FMLA because uh, people are kind of familiar with that. But the second part of the act, the uh, Emergency Paid Sick Leave Act, applies to anybody who's got an employee. So 
It doesn't mm-hmm. matter whether you have 50 or less than 50. The Emergency Paid Sick Leave Act applies. Uh, and basically, it says that the employee is entitled to uh, paid leave up to 80 hours um, for uh, one of the six things that I mentioned earlier. So if any of those things occur, the employee can get up to uh, 80 hours of paid sick leave. Uh, what the employers will also notice is that trying to read the law versus the regulations is going to be a little bit confusing. Uh, so if you're if you're you know very um, astute and you want to read the stuff for yourself, great. But just realize that there appears to be some inconsistencies between the law and the regulations. So it may you know not be a bad idea once you've read them to check with someone to make sure that you're uh, reading them. Uh, succinctly of the way they should be read. One example is under the um, the Act itself, the language of the Act, where it talks about um, health care providers, and I'll definitely get into the health care provider exemption a little more thoroughly. The Act itself uses the definition of health care provider that is in the FMLA. And the FMLA definition is very limited. It's only limited to doctors, medical doctors, and osteopaths. When the Department of Labor decided to uh, issue the regulations for the FFCRA, they realized that that was not really what was intended. So they kind of broadened the definition in the regulations. And when you read the regulations, it basically says, if you work for a doctor's office or a healthcare provider's office, then they can exclude you from taking leave. Your employer can't. Well, you have to be a little careful with that. The employers do because that is not the actual language of the statute that Congress issued. Hmm. But if you look back at the rationale given by Department of Labor for why they did what they did, their concern was that the FMLA definition was a little too narrow that one of the things that was intended was to allow an, a health care provider who had employees who could help combat COVID-19 or who were needed to keep their offices, you know, for example, hospitals and other health care facilities were important people to keep those entities running so they could also combat COVID-19. But they were going to broaden the definition to include those types of individuals also. So I would issue a caution to healthcare providers. If you are going to exclude an employee from being able to take leave, you need to check and make sure that the person you're going to exclude fits within kind of the auspices of what Department of Labor said it was intending to do with that definition. That way, if you're challenged about the exclusion, uh, you could arguably have, you know, a way to to defend the reason you made the decision you made because the language is very different. Hmm, that's interesting. So, yeah, you had mentioned yeah. earlier some uh, some exemptions, uh, maybe that that are are in the works uh, that that are related to this. Um, anything people should be on the lookout for on that front? Well, as I indicated, for the uh, healthcare providers, um, if you have an employee, for example, you are a hospital, um, you know, this might be a bad example, but you're a hospital and 
the person is not actually a doctor or a nurse, but they're needed to keep the hospital up and running, um, you can arguably tell that person they can't take the leave. But I would say document your reasons for why telling that person you can't take the leave because the argument can be made that if this person is essential to keep the hospital running, and the hospital needs to stay running to combat COVID-19, then arguably you have an argument against giving the person that the leave. Um, another exemption uh, outside of the healthcare provider arena is for the small businesses, uh, because there are a number of businesses out there with less than 50 employees. And the Department of Labor uh, you know, took that into consideration. And so in their regulations, they have provided a way that a small business with less than 50 employees can exempt itself from the uh, provisions of this act. And basically what they allow the small business to do is that an authorized officer of the business has to make a determination that, one, the leave requested would result in small business expenses and financial obligations exceeding the business's revenue that would cause the business to cease operating at a minimal capacity. And that's very important. It's not can I continue to operate at maximum capacity or at the capacity I was before COVID-19, but whatever your minimum you need to keep operating. If um, take, uh, providing the lead to the employees would put your financial obligations above that, then you may be, you may be able to exempt yourself. The other way that they can exempt themselves is if the absence of the employee would entail a substantial risk to the financial health of the operation's capabilities uh, because of their specialized skills, knowledge of the business, or responsibilities. So that's another way uh, you could uh, exempt yourself from the leave if you're a small business, meaning less than 50 employees. Uh, or where you don't have enough sufficient workers who are able or willing or qualified um, to come to work at the time and place needed to perform the labor, and the labor and services are needed for the small business to operate at minimal capacity. Again, the key word there being minimal capacity, not maximizing, not maybe where you were, but what's the minimum you need to keep operating. So those are the exemptions that they have provided for the small business employer. It's the uh, employer's responsibility to document that decision, document uh, why they believe that to be the case, and maintain the documentation. So uh, when asked, they can provide it to the appropriate agencies to show that they validly exempted themselves. Fascinating. <clears throat> it sounds like... Um... Uh, Deborah, that you know, businesses do have some options here, uh, but there is a lot to know and a lot to understand. Um, and, and again, your expertise in this field and and getting uh, seasoned in in these details pretty quickly, I know, is certainly unique um, uh, for the profession. But uh, uh, we appreciate everything that you've been able to offer. Is there anything else uh, that you'd like to add for folks to know before? Uh, we kick it over to Ruth from your team to discuss a little bit more in depth. Um, I would, and I, I would like to, again, uh, point out to uh, the, uh, the um, audience that there is an interplay between these two parts. Um, you know, for example, 
the um, extended FMLA, the first 10 days, they say, is unpaid, but the employee can use the leave under the Emergency Paid Sick Leave Act to cover those 10 days or paid time off that the employer has already given them. Also, there's a, a, another little nuance between difference between the regulations and the uh, language of the Act. The Act uses the term 10 days. The regulation uses two weeks um, mm. as far as uh, being able to apply the emergency paid sick leave because when they were trying to put together the regulations, they realized that not everybody works eight days a week, eight hours a day, five days a week. So that's kind of, I think, where they got the 10 days for the, the language in the act. But you could have someone who works 12 hours a day for three days a week. Hmm. So, <laughs> you know, they work 72 hours, but they're only working right. a total of six days. So arguably, they would be short four days <laughs> if you use the 10-day language. So oh, yeah. they were trying to. So, yeah, so with the regs, they tried to solve that problem by saying two weeks instead of 10 days. So. That's just to say that there are a lot of little um, landmines and potholes um, in this particular um, serena, uh, scenario uh, as between the act itself and the regulation. So it's better if in doubt, you know, to contact someone and not just read it on face value because there's a lot going on behind the scenes and a lot of interplay between those two provisions that have to kind of be worked out together. And I think um, Ms. Fabic is going to get into this a little bit more, the difference between using intermittent leave. I know that I've had some questions about that. Um, can they use intermittent leave under the expanded FMLA? Well, it depends on which one you're asking for. <laughs> uh, and can you use it, uh, intermittent leave under the uh, emergency paid sick leave back? Well, it depends on which uh, scenario you're going under. So there's a lot of moving parts, shall we say. Well, and again, that's that's why we have uh, folks like yourself uh, who can offer expertise in that and help people find the answers that they need. And I know people will find uh, the things that you've shared with us here on the show today incredibly valuable. Again, uh, appreciate your time uh, and effort to come here and uh, work with us uh, on a remote podcast to be able to translate some of this for folks who uh, many are probably hearing about this for the first time. So uh, I can't thank you enough for joining us on the show here, Deborah. Uh, it means a lot to our business community. Oh, and I definitely appreciate the opportunity to, to talk with you and and uh, all of the folks in Tallahassee about this issue. It's, it, it's very a very unique situation that we find ourselves in and, you know, we're all trying to get through it together, and anything I can do to help, of course, you know, I'm willing to do. You got it. Uh can't, again, tell you how much we appreciate it. And, folks, now we're going to transition to the second part of the show where we bring on um, Ruth Bobbitt, who is also a shareholder with the Ozzie McMullen Law Firm. Ladies and gentlemen, for the next portion of this show, we want to continue with our conversation about the Family First Coronavirus Response Act uh, with another wonderful guest from the Osley McMullen Law Firm is Ruth Ruth Bavik here. Pardon me, Ruth Bavik here, uh, a shareholder with Osley McMullen, who's going to tell us a little bit about some further things 
that employers should be aware of and be considering uh, with these new regulations uh, that have come out as a part of this act. First of all, though, Ruth, can you tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and your legal profession uh, and, and how that pertains to uh, our subject matter here today? I'd be happy to, Jay. Thank you. I practice, as Jay mentioned, with Deborah Minnis at Ozimical, and I practice mainly in the employment and intellectual property realms, both with litigation and consulting. Uh, in terms of my background, I'm a bit of a non-traditional lawyer. I had other careers before becoming a lawyer, including in HR, human resource. So <laughs> I, I feel like I have a, uh, a little bit of a, a nice, hopeful uh, piece to talking with employers and their HR folks when it comes to employment law. Uh, currently, uh, we live in Tallahassee. My husband is a professor at FSU, and we have two young children who, like many of yours, are probably uh, playing outside the door nearby. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> definitely a strange time, uh, but it's fun having the kids around, but uh, definitely a, a different environment, right? Indeed. I think everybody's uh, doing the best that they can. <laughs> that's it. That's all you can do. But, you know, kind of related to that, obviously, um, you know, in the first segment of this show, we, we talked with Deborah about uh, what kinds of companies uh, will be affected by these changes. And sort of, I guess, a good, a good way maybe to pivot to the conversation with you is um, now what? Now that you know you're being affected by this, what are the things that employers need to be doing uh, in their uh, work as um, uh, as employers to be able to make sure they're prepared for everything that comes next. Sure, and this is where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. Uh, so assuming that the Families First Act applies to you as an employer, uh, you can think of it in two pieces. So one piece is the... Emergency Paid Sick Leave Act. Uh, that applies for about six reasons. Um, the sixth one we don't know much about yet, uh, so just stay tuned for more on that. But um, the others can pretty much be broken up into caring for oneself or caring for somebody else. The second portion of the act is the Emergency Family Medical Leave Expansion Act. Uh, and that, as Deborah covered, applies to employers with fewer than 50 employees. So employers who have not traditionally been covered by the regular FMLA, the regular Family and Medical Leave Act. So there is some interaction, but because it applies to different types of employers, um, I'm going to break the discussion up a little bit. So as an employer, if you have an employee who needs to take care of a son or daughter whose school or child care facility is closed, uh, we're going to assume that that's probably the most common reason that your employees are going to need to take leave. And there's overlap in this area between the EFMLEA and the EPSLA. And the way this works is, like the regular FMLA, 
there is a maximum of 12 weeks of leave, job-protected leave, that you need to grant to your employees for this reason. For any of the reasons for which an employee needs to take leave under this Family's First Act, they have to provide a few pieces of baseline information. Those pieces include the employee's name, which seems obvious, but keep it in the documentation uh, and keep in mind that this information may be coming from somebody else initially, uh, you know, a spouse or a family member. Uh, the second piece is the date for which the leave is requested. Uh, the third piece is the qualifying reason for the leave, and again, we'll get into all of those in a few minutes. And the fourth is an oral or a written statement that the employee is unable to work because of the qualified reason for the leave. So if you have an employee who needs to take care of a child who's out of school or daycare, then you need those pieces of information that we just discussed. But you also need, and I'm saying need, because if you are seeking a tax credit, a payroll tax credit, uh, then you'll need to keep all of this documentation, and you're supposed to keep it for four years. Uh, but the additional documentation required for child care leave is the name of the son and or daughter being cared for, uh, the name of the school or place of care that has closed to become unavailable, and a representation from the employee that no other suitable person will be caring for the son or daughter during the period for which your employee is taking the leave. Now, this seems to make sense. What it means essentially is that you don't have two parents both taking care right. of the kids um, if they don't need to be. So if uh, the employee who's seeking the leave has somebody else who can take care of, of the child or children, then it's not required obviously. So uh, then you're not obligated to provide them paid leave as an employer. Uh, the other bit of a tweak for this reason for taking this leave is that you can, if the employer and the employee agree, uh, provide the leave intermittently. Now, this is unlike leave under the Families First Act for any of the other reasons. If you as the employer agree with the employee to provide intermittent leave for childcare reasons, uh, then you may do that. Now, again, keep in mind, this all needs to be documented somehow. Uh, but for instance, if your employee only needs to be home half the day, say they're splitting the duties with another adult, uh, then you could agree to give them four hours of covered leave per day. Uh, and in that case, the EFMLEA portion uh, is calculated as 12 weeks, which you may break down hourly. So if you do four hours a day, for instance, it could keep going potentially for, for 24 weeks. Fascinating. Now that, that's where... Uh... People say the details matter, right? This is there's more <laughs> flexibility here than maybe you, you you think at first glance, I guess. 
Exactly. In some ways, it's more detailed than traditional FMLA, FMLA leave. Uh, but on the other hand, there's, there is more flexibility, I think, built in there. Uh, and it, it appears Congress and the Department of Labor were trying to balance the needs of employees and of employers, small business employers. Uh, so that is probably going to be the most common reason for employees needed to take leave. So that's sort of a brief overview of how that uh, piece will apply. Now, the way it works out in terms of the interaction between the two pieces for childcare leave is that the first two weeks of childcare leave may be unpaid under the EFMLEA portion of it. Now, if the employee has extended paid sick leave leave still available, so they haven't taken it yet, then those two periods run concurrently. And again, the extended paid sick leave period is 80 hours or two work weeks, uh, 80 hours for full-time, otherwise two work weeks. Uh, with We won't get into today how all that's calculated, but uh, there's pretty good guidance on that. So if the employee needs to take childcare leave and they have not already used uh, the paid sick leave under the family's first act, again, that started April 1st, uh, then the first two weeks of that childcare leave, or 80 hours if you're, if you're going intermittently, would be unpaid, except that the Extended Paid Sick Leave Act applies. And the way that applies is that the employer needs to pay the employee uh, two-thirds of the greater of the regular rate of pay or minimum wage. Uh, and that amount, though, is capped at $200 per day or $2,000 over that course of two weeks or 80 hours. The same pay rate applies when the paid EFMLEA portion kicks in after the first two weeks. Again, don't want to confuse anybody today, but the if the employee has, for instance, already maybe had symptoms of COVID-19, uh, as we'll talk about in a few minutes, or has had to take care of someone else uh, who is suffering from it, then and has used up their two weeks of uh, extended of, of emergency paid sick leave, uh, then the employer can require or the employee can opt to use whatever paid leave they have available under normal employer policies for the first two weeks of childcare leave. Uh, we've had some questions also uh, on this piece about the whether the emergency FMLEA uh, child care leave, that 12-week period, stacks with regular FMLEA leave? The answer is generally no. There is a cap of 12 total of weeks between the EFMLEA and regular FMLEA leave. Uh, but employers need to keep in mind that that may depend on how they have set their FMLA leave years. Now, many employers have a calendar year FMLA leave year, in which case it's pretty easy. Employees may only use 
12 combined weeks of regular FMLA and EFMLEA leave in 2020. Uh, if an employer has a rolling leave year or, for instance, maybe they start their FMLA leave year on July 1st, then it gets a little bit more complicated. Uh, and again, without going too deeply into it today, um, essentially se- the separate 12-year caps apply. So if an employee has taken uh, already 12 weeks of regular FMLA leave, and the employer has a July 1st FMLA leave year start, then the employee could take 12 weeks of FMLEA leave starting July 1st, uh, but it has to be done by December 31st, 2020. So the short answer is no, they don't stack. Um, There may be some careful calculations that need to be done by employers who have sort of non-traditional or or non-calendar FMLA leave years. And this Um, is not leave you can take with you, right? This is is very particular to this virus, Um, not something uh, that's necessarily transferable uh, beyond those dates you mentioned. Exactly. Uh, Employers do not have to pay out for any unused leave if an employee uh, leaves that employer's employment. So this is not like some types of PTO or or sick leave or vacation leave uh, where employees accrue certain amounts and then they can get paid out uh, under employer policies if they leave without using it. Uh, This is uh, an entitlement, but there again, there's for private employers, there's a payroll tax credit. Uh, So employers really shouldn't uh, be having to bear a, a terrible financial burden um, for paying this leave. The, and actually, there, that brings up an interesting tweak, Jay, because an employee, the, each employee is capped at 12 weeks. So if an employee takes 10 weeks of EFMLEA leave at one employer and then moves over to a different employer, uh, then they only have two weeks of EFMLEA leave remaining to them. So it's 12 weeks per employee uh, from April 1st to December 31st, 2020, uh, not 12 weeks per employee per employer. Okay. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. Well, and and I'm sure, you know, as these types of scenarios, you know, know, we we can sit here and try to explain through them uh, a lot of hypotheticals, but as scenarios are starting to actually develop around this, uh, probably pretty frequently uh, in the coming weeks. Um, you know, you, you'll be having these kinds of conversations with folks. Y'all teams will be talking with people about, uh, again, these real-life situations that uh, employers are going through as their employees are, are struggling. Um, any any general advice in that category for, for things people should be thinking about as uh, a scenario like this starts to present itself maybe in, within a company? Well, uh, as I probably every other employment lawyer uh, will say, document. <laughs> mm-hmm. Document everything. Um, again, because, uh, you know, you can accept oral information from employees who are requesting leave. Uh, that puts the onus on you as the employer to document that. Um, you know, we we have already been working with some of our clients to develop some forms. Um, 
but the the new Department of Labor regulations are, are fairly I'd say restrictive. I, I can't say that they strike the wrong balance, but you can't require a whole lot as an employer from your employees to document the reasons they're taking the leave. So it really requires some little bit of good faith on both sides to make it all work. Um, as Deborah may have mentioned too, the because this law and these regulations were put together pretty quickly, uh, the, you know, when it comes down to interpretation, um, courts uh, and the Department of Labor are going to look probably at the guidance and legislative intent, which really seems to be, you know, okay, we don't want to um, make employers go out of business with these requirements. Uh, but in order to tamp down on this pandemic, we really need to allow employees to take leave when they need to take it um, for these qualifying reasons. So judiciously is a word that appears <laughs> in the guidance from the Department of Labor. Uh, you know, if, and whether you call it gray area or whether you call it flexibility, you know, that there is some room in here where we don't necessarily know the answers right now. Uh, so it's really going to depend on the facts and circumstances of the case. Um, so I, you know, suggest employers, you know, think about the balancing of their needs and the employees' needs when they're deciding how to proceed. Um, and of course, you know, looking at the, looking at the actual requirements. But if there if there's some gray area or some question, uh, think about that balance and then document it. You know, whatever you decide, uh, make sure you, you make sure you document that so that you can justify it later if you need to. You know, hopefully not. But uh, you know, there there are going to be some difficult situations. You know, there are going to be some some folks on on both sides probably who who end up upset and, and maybe seeking some legal recourse. So. Uh, you know, we want uh, employers to, to be able to show why they took the decisions that they made, um, you know, in good faith without having to try to go back and recreate the wheel, which we all know is really difficult. Mm-hmm. Well, you use the word balance. I think that's an appropriate word for right now, you know, when a time where there's a lot of uh, things up in the air, you know, just trying to keep a level head and make good decisions. And as you said, document those things and, and, and most importantly, be informed. And uh, uh, I can't tell you how much I appreciate um, your comments here today, as well as those of Deborah's. Um, Ruth, is there is there anything that that maybe we should, uh, in closing, add to those who are listening in that maybe they should be aware of? I'll just say um, point out for the self care reasons under the FFCRA, the 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 pay caps are, are different. Um, it's intended to provide full income replacement up to a maximum of $511 a day, or you know, which, which again is over two weeks, so uh, capped at $5,110 total. Um, but when you're looking at documentation, the employer generally is not going to be allowed to request, for instance, the doctor's note. Uh, what you do need to get as an employer is the name of the healthcare provider who is providing the pertinent advice or diagnosis. So you need to be a little bit careful as, as employers, um, not to go overboard, uh, beyond what the regulations allow. 
in terms of requiring documentation. Um, it will require a little bit of trust. <laughs> uh, we did at the, and that was one of our first thoughts, and, and we've already been talking with some of our clients who, who have uh, questions in that regard about how to really apply that. But, you know, hopefully you, you have uh, good relationships with your employees. Um, oh, the, the last thing I think I want to point out is um, <laughs> talk to an employment lawyer uh, before you start changing your leave policies. In light of the FFCRA, uh, it provides some limitations on what you can do, potentially. So don't go making drastic changes uh, in your leave policies uh, without talking with a, a lawyer first. Um, and I also say, you know, talk to your CPAs. We know a number of CPAs who are working on developing leave tracking uh, programs because we know this is new and, and complex, uh, and particularly if you're, if you're seeking that payroll tax credit, you need good documentation. You need to be talking with a CPA about the best way to do that. Well, we always like to uh, agree with that advice and tell people that, uh, <laughs> fortunately, we have wonderful law firms and CPAs here in our community that are chamber members and uh, in good standing with the community, trying to do good work for those who need it. And uh, certainly your firm at Osley and McMullen is one of those. And, Ruth, I just want to follow up with the point that I made to Deborah earlier. We appreciate both of you coming on the show. We appreciate your expertise and certainly your time and your willingness to speak to our listeners and the broader business community here in Tallahassee about things that they need to know about the Family First Coronavirus Response Act uh, and the variety of impacts that that can have on businesses and the relationship between employers and employees right now. So thanks again for coming on the show. We appreciate your expertise. I uh, can't tell you how much it means. that uh, There will be a lot of folks looking for answers here uh, in the coming weeks, and I think uh, the, the topics and range of um, knowledge that you all have been able to display here about something that's been sort of a fast-moving target, I think, is uh, goes to show just uh, how wonderfully talented uh, the attorneys at your law firm are, uh, and how wonderfully talented both of you are. So we appreciate that very much. Thanks for being with us. We appreciate you, Jay, and uh, everything the Chamber does for our community. You got it. Well, we're happy to be doing it. And, folks, if uh, we appreciate you listening to the show. As always, uh, we have been bringing you these Tallahassee Business Podcast special edition episodes related to the COVID-19 coronavirus uh, and we'll continue to do so. But we appreciate everything that you do as chamber members, as part of our business community, uh, to help us all get through this together. Uh, this is certainly a strange and unique time and one that we all have to lean on each other more than maybe even we usually do uh, to get through it uh, in a safe and sound way. So thanks for listening. Thanks for being a part of our community. Best wishes to all of you who are paying attention uh, to our weekly shows right now. We appreciate you listening in. And as always, you can find this episode and all episodes uh, of the Tallahassee Business Podcast available on your favorite listening device or at our homepage, www.talchamber.com. That's T-A-L-chamber.com, where you can also find a wide variety of resources available to businesses right now with the COVID-19 pandemic. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back with you real soon. <laughs>